Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. This episode of Jaws of Justice is hosted by David Bell. It's part eight of his trauma series. David speaks with his guest, Cordell C.J. Pulliam, community builder, activist, and black historian. For C.J., activism is life. He works to better himself in the communities to which he belongs. From his experience living in group homes to graduating college, C.J. uses a historical lens to describe his journey to love himself as a black gay man. Through tragedy and triumph, C.J. has become a true agent of change by challenging and inspiring those around him. We'll play the calendar at the midpoint of our hour. Maya Angelou said, you can't really know where you're going until you know where you have been. History is important to study because it is essential for all of us in understanding ourselves and the world around us. History helps us to understand present day issues by asking deeper questions about why are things the way they are. Understanding past events and how they impact the world today can bring about empathy and understanding for groups of people whose history may be different from the mainstream. You will also understand the suffering, joy, and chaos that were necessary for the present day to happen and appreciate all that you're able to benefit from past efforts today. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Hi, this is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Activism is life for Cordell C.J. Pulliam, as he works to better himself and the communities to which he belongs. From group homes to graduating college, C.J. uses a historical lens to describe his journey to love himself as a black gay man. Through tragedy and triumph, C.J. has become a true agent of change by challenging and inspiring those around him. C.J., welcome to Jaws of Justice. Hey, thanks for having me. You know, one of the things I was fascinated by is when we did a pre-interview and we were at Frickin' Frack, Mm -hmm. and uh, a waiter came up who you didn't know and saw something on a t-shirt of yours or something that knew Mm -hmm. that you had gone to UMKC and he had gone to UMKC, Mm -hmm. and it turns out he had actually read a paper that you had written at UMKC. And what I found remarkable about that is I don't think I've ever had a paper read by anybody other than maybe my parents that I wrote at school. And here you had someone that you didn't even know that was going back and reading about your papers. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about uh, that paper and uh, uh, the My title? paper was um, the, uh, the time that the perception of African Americans through the lens of the talented 10th and Bill Cosby exceptionalism in, in media. Um, and it focused on the Talented Tenth as a way of deconstructing the images of black people versus what was actually portrayed in what was coming on in the news during the same time period through the lens of what uh, the shapers of that medium, mostly in that period time period being Bill Cosby and folks like him versus what black people in the 1980s actually thought of themselves and if they were actually accurately represented by those mediums. Okay. Let me, can I slow you down just a second, CJ? Okay, because I understand some of what you're saying. I know my listeners do, too, and I'm fascinated by it. We went through the thought process mm-hmm. before, but if you could... 
use simpler words okay, for me and I the listeners. To, is what, what's the talent of ten? What are you talking about? Just for us, it's it's okay. a, it's beautiful thought, and I love as I was went through it. But I know when I first heard it, when we were at the dinner, I, it took me a second to get there. Yeah, I need the high school. Please. You need to David Ballot. Go ahead. From the beginning? Yeah. No, well, just what, what you were saying. about the paper? Yeah, yeah. So my paper was about, is a um, is an analysis of what it, what it how people view black people in medium and how that actually affects them. So I use the lens of Bill Co- The Cosby Show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Martin, The Different World, shows like that, versus the news coming on immediately after those shows and uh, what people are doing those time periods uh, giving interviews thought how they thought they were reflected in those shows and how those uh, attitudes and prevailing uh, ideas about what black people were affected them. And so what is the Talent of Ten? The Talent of Tenth is a theory by uh, concocted by uh, elites and whites of the late 1800s saying that in order to help raise up the, the Negro race, they will be while doing that, be represented by their most talented and celebrity number. So the most talented and visible of the African-American race will come to represent the entirety of the African-American race. But, but when we're looking at Bill Cosby, I guess you were trying to juxtapose when I'm watching the Cosby show and I'm seeing like two doctors. I think, I forgot. I think right. they're both so they're doctors. Both, no, one's a doctor and one's a lawyer. Right. They have five children. They're at home all the time. They never run into any kind of race-related trauma or maladies in their everyday lives and that wasn't realistic for what was happening for lots of black families living in that same New York neighborhood. Could they afford a brownstone like that? Could adopt? I mean, it's just in order to do those things and we're thinking about we're in the 80s. We're, what, uh, 20 years out? Not even 20 years away from the civil rights movement at this point. Is it possible? Does it rightfully reflect African-American struggles? And what's the, what's the purpose, if you will, of putting those forward as representatives? Is it to placate? Is it to placate the majority to say that oh here's some here's some people that look safe to us? What's the what's what's what is someone trying to achieve by putting that forward? I think they're just trying to achieve just some visibility for us, which isn't a bad thing. The Bill the Cosby Show. I mean, let alone, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for Bill, but the Cosby Show in and of itself was not a bad thing. What is bad is how you use that to punish black people by putting these cookie-cutter images of black people up and saying this is what all black people should act like, and you juxtapose that against people being arrested for using drugs and the war on drugs and and the crack academic and uh, super predators. You use those images versus the cookie-cutter Huxtable images in order to punish everyday black people it becomes a problem so essentially it's creating almost a a, a false standard or mm-hmm. unrealistic standard this is our expectation is all black people are going to be right. a doctor and a lawyer with five kids spend a bunch of time everyone's mm-hmm. going to go to college and if you fall outside of that image then you're less than and we're going to punish you yeah and you even it's even worse when you get to shows like the fresh prince where you take will from a seemingly black environment and move him to a nicer white environment, white in a Bel Air, and he thrives. That narrative is kind of pushed on black people, like as you see as they continually move further away from black neighborhoods, taking those that 
excellence out of black neighborhoods. So you can see the dilapidation. I mean, and, and it's it's really noted and the dilapidation, even if you look around Kansas City and the dilapidation of the urban core in the Kansas City School District, that uh, the the constant move of, of well-to-do African-Americans moving from those neighborhoods is leaving them dilapidated and moving out to Raytown and all those other school districts watching those suburbs continue to grow. So you can see it everywhere. You know, your love of history, and you eventually became a history major at UMKC, started in a kind of an unusual place. Uh, and it was almost a, an escape for you that drove you into history. And I wonder if you could briefly talk about where that took place and, and how you thrived within this environment, which I don't think was meant to help you thrive. Got into history a lot. Like when I was a kid, it was really useful just to read a lot. And lots of books are about history. So um, when I was younger, uh, I ended up in a bunch of group homes. Um, you know, my mom, uh, there were six of us. She had all six of her kids before she was 21. So, um, and she ended up abandoning all six of us. And we all ended up in the system. We were adopted by my grandmother, but I don't think she could really handle it. And I was emotionally raw. So it just, we just went through a lot of, of different episodes through no fault of anyone, I think, in that in the situation at that point. But, um, yeah, when I was in group homes reading, it really gave me a place to be because just staring at those walls and and being in those thoughts all the time and feeling abandoned and unloved it was really hard but being intelligent that I could do <laughs> being smarter than everyone uh, especially when you're a kid because you get all your kudos you get all your awards for excellence in reading excellence and so I was I was an award collector I wanted to know everything so I used to just get encyclopedias and I would pick a, a letter or a number for that day and I would sit there with that encyclopedia and read it until it was done. So you went through A through Z, mm-hmm. read through encyclopedias. And then I would just pick favorite letters. So after a while, after I got through all of them, I would just pick M, Z, T, ones with wars. I love world wars. They have the earth so eventful. There's so much to, 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 to scrutinize, to look at, so many dates to memorize. So wars were important. One thing about the group home that you brought up to me is you were placed in a group home specifically um, because you were described by others as a feminine. Yeah, uh, they 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 described me as being um, what's it called gender confused. They thought I was confused or something, and it was something that was that's no longer in the DSM four. It was a gender identity confusion, I think. And I didn't really suffer from that. I was just, I just am who I am. It was just, it was very, it was very hard, but very, uh, it's very confusing. It, it put a lot on me, but I, you know, I just refused. But but they but you were put in there and you were put in with individuals that were either thought to or diagnosed with problems related to to sexual to sexual stuff. Sexual so, so they're saying, oh, mm-hmm. here's someone who's effeminate. He must be gender confused. Mm-hmm. We're going to put him in with a group of individuals that maybe have acted out on others and things right. like that. And then, as I understood it, you refused to go along with that program. And did. And you, and then and you you refused and successfully refused. And then you separated yourself. And it was during those separations where you were just you and your encyclopedias learning mm-hmm. history and Harry Potter. Thank 
Harry and Harry Potter. <laughs> so, but looking and learning through that history, also, the impression I got when we talked was also learning more about who you were as a person and your identity. And yeah, like when you, when people are always telling you who and what you are, you, you, you kind of find, have to find ways to define that and hang on to that thought. <laughs> like, that's the thought that drives you and keeps you and sustains you when you're in, when everyone in the world is telling you who and what you are and you have to define that for yourself and you know it, it can't be taken from you and you have to protect it and sometimes you have to just, you know, insulate around it. That's that seed that you grow from, so. And when we were talking about it, it almost talked about the, 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 the identity was grown. It was almost you were in a spot where you were told what you couldn't be, and mm-hmm. that allowed you to be. Yeah, it's like rebellion almost. It's like, this, oh, well, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I don't know who told you, but this is the things that I want. I'm going to get them. The things that I want to be, I'm going to do them. And I, and I think... I think that that has defined me moving forward this whole time. So I, I appreciate that. Like, even when I look back at my childhood, like, I missed out on a lot, but I also had and got a lot. I got, I had and got a lot of things that I would not have gotten if I had a normal childhood. And I'm very appreciative of, of where my journey has taken me. So. And you, you talked about then uh, when we were meeting before about kind of coming into your own at UMKC, both as a gay man and as a gay black man and whatever other uh, parts of your identity that you were developing. Could you describe what that meant? There seemed to be a hesitation at first about being a gay man and being accepted yeah, with other. Uh, when I was, uh, so when I first got into college, I was at Penn Valley. And when I was there, I was in a group called the Student Ambassadors. And that group had a lot of black men that I kind of did not work towards at all at being in community with and my advisor then her name was Gwen Pate was like you know you're really hesitant about opening yourself up to black men and, and being a part of this group but she said I know that one day you're going to find a group that you can be at home with and she was right uh, when I got to UMKC it was really through argumentation just like anything else just like anything I do is through argumentation by trying to form smarter than someone I was in African American literature when the with the president the then president of men of color his name was Charles Harris and we would argue like cats and dogs in the class and in the hallway after and he's like you should just come with me to my men of color meeting he said that every week and I just did not want to go one week I just went and I was just really impressed with and, it, and I went there was only like three or four of us so but like I like Charles, he impressed me with his acumen, with like just like his inclusiveness. He really wanted me. He he valued what I had to say, and you don't always get that in black men when you're when you're gay. Like it's not. Could you, could, you, could you explain? Slow down just a bit for me and the listeners. Could you explain the hesitation or the concern you may have had going into a, a black male space? I mean, I as grew a up in man. the '90s. You just know your role. Like you, you it's okay. Like, we don't really talk about it, but you just know where you're getting, where you fit in. That's the rule. So if you know that this is not a place, because I grew up around in the inner, black inner city, so being gay is not, it's not like they're going to beat you up, but they, they just not, it's just not something you're going to, like, be yourself around. And so, like, it's not like saying you, you can't never, I can't, I don't bring dates to home on Thanksgiving. I don't talk about my relationships in front of my family. I, these are just things you don't just do. But... I can do that around my friends. I can do that in men of color. I can do that in those places because they open themselves up to me. Um, black people, no matter how you know liberal we are, we're also very conservative in our um, in our values. 
So there's deeply entrenched homophobia in, in a lot of black spaces. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful and happy to say that I helped to uh, open up a lot of those spaces in UMKC and uh, in, in, in my fraternity and in my organizations, on, in campus life, and just in, in, in any circle that I've been a part of. So I'm very uh, honored and grateful and, and appreciative for all the doors that I've been able to open and, and, and groups that I've been able to be a part of. And so at UMKC and in, in, this group, in the group Men of Color, and what was the, the purpose of the group Men of Color? What was it? What's the intent of it at whatever, the time? Or is it whatever now? the Men of Color in that group, whatever we needed is that's what Men of Color was for. Uh, it was built to specifically focus on the needs of Men of Color on our campus and, and to meet those needs. So whatever they needed, if they needed a study group, if they needed supplies, food, like we did uh, game nights and and, uh, and trivia nights and, and social events and relationships. Uh, we did relationship uh, sessions and you know whatever the bros needed. That's what we we created. We did a we did a, a policing events. We did a Ferguson event because that was the year. It was 2014. So we did Ferguson. We did uh, we did marches. We did anything my brothers needed. We tried our best to be there for and do for them. And you also became part of a fraternity. I did Phi and Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated, <laughs> the Lambda Alpha chapter will be celebrating their 50th anniversary next year. So I'm very excited about that. Shout out to my bros. But I got the impression for you that was a that's a big moment for Absolutely. you to be accepted into a male a black male fraternity. Absolutely was. Could I, you describe I that? I, I cried a lot about it. Like I, uh, my best friend Chastney, she's a Zeta, and she uh, she introduced me to like all the fraternities. Because when I got there, I only knew about one. I'm not gonna say which one it was because I don't want to be snitching on myself. But like I, um, I definitely was interested in, in going Greek, and and I was so enamored with the lifestyle. But to be a brother. I learned what that really means from them. I learned what it means to have people to depend on you, to be a big brother to someone else. Uh, shout out. I love my brothers, especially Trey, Jason, Cam. Like, they did so much for me. John and then my littles, Darian. <laughs> Darian and Justin, like, they taught me so much. And, of course, my bro, Louise, can't forget you. But, bro, like, they did, they changed my life and how I view brotherhood and to be accepted and to really go forward and be a man and to and to have value. Like, it's really about value. Explain that for me, if you could, please. Like, you could be in a lot of spaces, and people might use you, but that doesn't mean they value you. Like, they truly want to see you thrive and do better and are for you, and you're for them, and it's like a, a truly reciprocal balance to that, to that friendship that you can really both, and everyone in the group can grow. I love seeing that in my fraternity. I saw that in men of color. Like, everybody, all the groups that I joined, we really wanted to see each other thrive and grow. And that, those moments in, in, in my life are irreplaceable. And that's really, if I'm being honest, where my activism was, was born. I wanted to protect them. I wanted to see them happy. 
I wanted to see them not suffer. I wanted to fight for the things they wanted to fight for and the things that they wanted to see in a world in which all of us could be happy. And I didn't see that world. The more I learned about history and the more I studied at UMKC and the more we came through things, the more the rose-colored glasses came off about the hopefulness of the world and the reality of what the world actually is uh, settled in. And because of that, I knew that I had to not only build them up to be the people that they deserve to be, but fight for the world in which they could thrive and be the people that they want to be. And when we talked before, you had mentioned to me that you had learned to love yourself and those things about yourself that were kind of up in the air beforehand, and that that love then wanted, you wanted to protect that and wanted to see that thrive in others. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, growing up, I definitely felt unloved most times, and it's a hard-fought battle. So when you learn, finally learn how to love yourself, like you, you, at first it's it's kind of like a uh, like a, a self. You have to keep telling yourself over and over again till you believe it. And then when other people start to believe it around you, it helps you believe it more. And it becomes like like it's like a single voice versus a choir. Like when you're that single voice, it's hard to believe, and you just have to keep. In, in little engine that cutting it, I think I can, I think I did, I think I am. And then when other people start showing you that they value and love you, and then this person comes along and they love you more, and then this person gives you more love, it it becomes this resounding chorus of love. And not only does it fill your cup, your cup fills back into them. It's it's such a an amazing feeling. Those are kind of communities that were built in at UMKC in multicultural student affairs, and in the dorm, just as a, as as friend groups. Not only just at UMKC, but as we've gone gone out to Chicago, Dallas, Atlanta, and wherever all of my friend groups are now, there we're still connected. We still thrive. We still love, and so and activism and the work is spreading in that way too. So. And, and so as we, we finish up this first half of the show and we'll talk the second half about what you're doing in terms of activism, mm-hmm. help me understand your definition of activism because you and I talked about it and we kind of went back and forth on the meaning of it. And then to you, what does activism mean? Not only what you've done in your life so far, but what you're going to do in the future. For me, activism is really just about life. Like when you find something you love and protect it, that's activism. You're actively working towards protecting it. I don't know if if, if my Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were fighting people that I know and love are fighting just to exist fighting just to like that's what I consider activism we're just fighting for our existence to love and live a happy life I know earlier someone asked me what what the perfect world would be like and I I just want to live raise a family and love and 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 have some accomplishments do some things I really care about Build up some, build up somebody, love somebody with my whole heart, and raise some kids, and pass that on. And it seems like that part of that dream requires a community, a supportive community, just like you said, this kind of overflowing love that this, never, this almost never-ending source of it. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Is that is that community for you? Is that kind of Absolutely. power? Absolutely, communities are built in love. I think I think when you find love, that's where home is. <laughs> And once you know what your home is, that's where you build your community. We're speaking to our guest, C.J. Pulliam, as he works to better himself and the communities to which he belongs. We've talked a little bit about what gave rise to his activism to this date. And when we come back in the next half hour, we'll talk about what he's doing now and what his plans are for the future. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. 
Support for KKFI provided by Monarch Glass Studio, offering unique glass installations for corporate spaces and contemporary blown glass for any occasion. More information is available at monarchglassstudio.com. Well, I guess I better do something with that old thing. Fine, honey, I'll get rid of it. Does any of this sound familiar? Well, you can turn your used-up car, boat, truck, van, or motorcycle into the programs you know and love right here on KKFI. All you have to do is go to kkfi.org, find the support tab to donate your wheels, rudders, or handlebars, or you can call 816-931-3122 ask for the development department. That's 816-931-3122 or go to kkfi.org. Thank you so much for your support, and remember, you can hear your old ride in your new one. Did you know your business or organization could be sponsoring this episode of Jaws of Justice Radio? Learn more at kkfi.org marketing. Now the calendar for the week of November 28th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense virtual meetings this week, go to momsdemandaction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. Monday, November 28, 1230 p.m., Civil rights and faith leaders, including Kevin Johnson's spiritual advisor, will host a press conference prior to the oral argument outside the Missouri Supreme Court building. This is a live rally on behalf of clemency for Kevin Johnson hosted by Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty and the Missouri State Conference of the NAACP. You can meet at Missouri Supreme Court Building, 207 West High Street, Jefferson City, Missouri. For more info, contact 816-931-4177. Tuesday, November 29th, execution watch for Kevin K.J. Johnson, noon at Missouri State Capitol in Jefferson City, 3 p.m. at St. Louis, 4 p.m. at 39th and Troost, Kansas City, Missouri, 5 p.m. at Von Terre, Missouri. All info on our Facebook page. A list of services, mails, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is C.J. Pulliam. He's a community builder, an activist, and a black historian. We talked in the first half hour a little bit about what kind of gave rise to his identity and also to his activism. In this half hour, we're going to talk more about what he's doing now and his plans for the future. But before we do that, I wanted to go back to one question. I know we, we began with the, the, the paper that you wrote in college that this other person had read who, who didn't, you didn't even know, but but you were, you know, it was out there for, for individuals to, to see and learn from. And it was about the Talented Tenth. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do you consider yourself part of the Talented Tenth? And, and is that even is that even disrespectful for me to be asking that? Because the way you made the Talented Tenth seem, it was almost like no, this projecting I, I, this image. So go ahead. Um, 
No, I definitely am. Um, I am not only am I a member of the college elite, the educated, and I'm also a member of a fratern of the divine divine fraternity. So people would consider those to be in the talented tenth. Um, but I also do believe, as a member of said uh, class, that it is my duty to reach back to those who are not. So I have I have an obligation to go back into my communities with the knowledge and tools that I've gained by being privileged enough to go to a college institution, by being privileged enough to be in these rooms where other people were not able to go because by whatsoever circumstance they might have been born into to bring back the things that I got from being in that room that they could not get because they were not. So as we move on now from college, and I got the impression as you talked about it before of uh, college being a very kind of a, a very warm, caring environment where you kind of came into your own. But then you leave college and it's almost like a, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like a brutal world out there, right? Very jarring. <laughs> right. It, it's just like, oh no. What like, a transition. Well, right. Yeah. And um, so how, so where's family in that? And even more so, how does activism continue? I know you've had some jobs uh, since college. Absolutely. So t- tell me about how that, how that desire to, to protect the love of yourself and the, and the love for others, how that manifests itself as you move out of college well uh career wise it's been a challenge because i started out in education which is also another busted system which i'm sure we could do a whole nother show on um but i definitely one of the reasons why i ended up where i ended up was because the education system was so flawed and so gut-wrenching to be a part of that i had to remove myself from it it was very hard for me to see uh, armed policemen in schools, to see armed guards in school, to see children uh, harshly punished for doing things that I had seen other students doing in other schools. That it just, I couldn't bear it. It was hard on my, on my soul, on my person. Um, and after that, um, I spent some time working in nonprofits, which I actually thoroughly enjoyed until having to leave due to illness. But um, I worked in as a in a nonprofit, doing um, being a uh, community engagement specialist for HIV/AIDS uh, prevention. So let's talk about that really quick. What what was your role in that? in that space and in that uh, job? We created uh, workshops and community engagement opportunities for black MSMs, men that sleep with men, and uh, also encourage them to uh, get on PrEP and prevent them from getting HIV and just create uh, just community awareness events for that community as well. And why do you think that was needed or why is that still needed? Because HIV is a silent killer. Not only that, but black MSMs are not just limited. We say MSMs because it's men that sleep with men because we know for a fact it's not just limited to men or women or whatever, how people are identifying in those groups. Like, sex is so, can be so, sex can be fluid. So we want to protect as many people as possible. Um, and so by in protecting them and protecting their partners and the people that they know and creating that awareness, we're saving lives. And so what was the drug that you were... Uh, the prep? Yeah, the prep. Uh, uh, it's, called, it's a pre-exposure prophylactic. There are several that you can take, but they all prevent the spread of HIV. And so from that... Pre-exposure. Uh, so pre-exposure. you have to not have it. So it's prep. Prep is pre-exposure. And so, and so in that space, you're educating people about that, but certainly the individuals would already have some idea of what's going on. So what is it? Somewhat. You never know. So you never... It, it's, it's harmful to assume people's level of knowledge when you're coming into those situations because you want to assume people know to use condoms. They know to do this. They know to do that. But you'd be surprised. They might know, but their level of engagement with that or 
some people don't believe that fat meat's greasy until it's in their mouth. So sometimes you have to really spoon feed it to them in a way that they can understand, that they can digest in a way that makes it real for them. Um, and and that's why you need community engagement specialists that are members of the community who can engage with the members in ways that they can digest you. And what other, in terms of other forms of activism, as you would describe them, or maybe I would I describe also, them? I also, you know, organized with Operation Liberation, which is a community-based effort to end um, jailing and harmful jailing policies here in Kansas City. I also have been a part of One Struggle Kansas KC, and I organized nationally with the NAACP in their Next Generation Leadership Program. And tell us about that. I love the NAACP's Next Generation next-gen program. It is an amazing um, national think tank of young leaders who are in the, in the association and uh, have held some kind of leadership uh, position around the country, and they have to be under 35. So we're the next generation to take over the association. So, And what is it you're doing? What are you trying to get uh, done? We are just, you know, trying to engage, keep the association going. And, and very we 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 reckon, first of all recognizing that activism is not static. So the things that they have always done and are currently doing are not going to work for everybody. And then as the next generation, what does that transition look like? Um, I love organizing with next gen, but not in the NWP. There have been issues with, you know. Um, letting the young folk come up and take over and seeing what our perspective is. So with NextGen, we really work hard to uh, transit, to see that transition come to fruition throughout the association nationwide. And there are some amazing people in this program. You would not believe some of the amazing women who have uh, changed the way that I view the world and the, way that I, the lenses by which I view everything, even just like meeting people. You, you had told me in a prior discussion that your kind of learning to love yourself and learning more about your identity had helped you to see women, and particularly black women, in a different light. Could you talk about that? Um, black women really like the nurture, the way that they sat, the self-sacrifice, the, the everything that they give up in order to, to substantiate the existence of black men. Like, you really don't get to look at all those layers until you take it from a historical lens and see how much they have sacrificed to push forward a narrative of the strong black man while sacrificing so much of themselves. Like, black women really have, they raise black men, they they are hurt by black the, the the they are the primary nurturers of black men and yet they the prim, the, the primary abusers of black women are black men like it's such a it's such a nuanced life to live and yet they 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 stay so loyal to the soil that I can never imagine my life without them and even me as a black gay man like I used to always consider like the the harm that I was doing to black women sometimes in in my dalliances and things like that I didn't consider it the way that I do now and I look back on those things and, and and I'm ashamed of some of the things that I've done because my life without black women would be nothing. And what do you mean harm? You're, you're harmed to black women. Just the ways that I just have not considered them. I didn't. I didn't put. I didn't consider their emotions, their feelings, their because I don't date them, and that's rude. That's wrong. That's me being a user. I'm using black women when I do that. 
because I'm taking from them and knowing that I'm not going to build back into them because I don't want a romantic relationship with them, that's wrong. And I had to learn from that. I had to learn to be a better man. I had to learn how to truly support them so that when the time came, like, I, I, this is what being a feminist, that's another part of becoming a, you have to be a feminist. What does being a feminist mean? I had to take myself out of it my manhood, my everything out of it. And people might think that's easy because I'm gay, but it's actually harder. <laughs> Why is that? Because I don't, because you don't use women in the same way that men, men need a, have this need for women in their life. I don't have that. I do, but I don't. Like my partner will not be a woman. You understand what I'm saying? So in that way, like I, my life was not gonna be woman focused. But what I do mean is that, you know, um, I, I just, you know, you just have to really, I had to really take a step back and really learn how to appreciate a woman for what she is and make sure that they get what they need. But certainly, aren't you in almost a better position to appreciate a woman for herself when you don't necessarily have that desire sexually? Yes and no. I could never, I could never give, like, I could never give a woman, I know for a fact I could never give a woman as much as she needs. I can just give her as much as I can. And I think that even if I was in a woman sexually, I can never give her all that she needs, but I know that I'm going to give her as much as I can. I want to move next to the health aspect. I know you talked a little bit about activism with mm-hmm. your work with um, HIV prevention, mm-hmm. but now I want to talk about your health. Oh. I know, and 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 part of that, part of my fascination with your story, CJ, is that you have you're able to describe your situation both as a lived experience, but also through a historical lens. Yeah. And I guess how would you first of all help me if you could, don't mind, help me put that into words, if if you will, as to how you're able to live in it but outside of it at the same. time. Time. That's uh, I mean, as a historian, you're taught to remove yourself from everything. So I think it just comes in second nature to think about things outside of yourself. Because um, as a black person, th- I mean, I studied all of these black history things, right? But I could never understand the malice and forethought of it without removing myself from my blackness. Like, how do I? Why? Why is it? A, why is slavery a, called a peculiar institution? I would never understand that as a black person. It's not peculiar to me. To me, it's oppression. To me, it's harm. To me, it's hate. That's what it is to me as a black person. As a historian, in order to found a new country in the midst of established nations, slavery is a necessary evil to catch up to the established powers that exist in Europe. I understand that as a historian. As a black man, I don't. So, looking on it at health, then, mm-hmm. you've, you've faced some health challenges that I think from speaking to you, I got the impression have resulted from structural. Oh, that's a, <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It's all silent. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. From speaking to you uh, about your health challenges, I, I get the impression that some of them have been brought about by kind of structural. Uh, issues in our society. One main, main one, main one being healthcare. And I wonder if you could talk right. about that both from right. a personal standpoint, but also from a historical lens. I mean, I can do both because they're 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 part of the same beast. Black people historically have been left out of conversations about healthcare because they lack the capital and and the financial ability to participate in, in those conversations, along with uh, a, a a a big chunk of health literacy. Um, people don't talk to black people about their health in a way that gives them an upper knowledge. Like, they use the words around them, but they don't make sure that that, that it's really being 
communicated in a way that they're going to be able to participate with you as an equal. So a doctor might come in the room and tell you a lot of things, but are they participating with you as an equal if your community has been left out of the education system, financial systems, and other systems in order to participate as equals? And so um, without those, without money, like I've been diabetic since I was 22. They, they told me I was diabetic and they sent me home with a prescription for $700 and my rent was $500. Like how was I going to get that insulin? I didn't have insurance. I was ba- barely out of being homeless. Uh, I was homeless since I was 25. Um, so I was, it was really like, what am I going to do with this? Like, I, I, I had no choice but to exercise a lot. I, I removed all the sugar from my cabinets. And, and that's all I could do was try my best to live without the insulin. That was, I had no other options. And I didn't, I lacked the, the, the common sense to reach out to the community. I think there's also a, another bane might be a, a solo hustle mentality that is entrenched into my generation that stopped us from reaching out when we need help, which is also another mental health issue. Like mental health, we also ignore those things in the black community. There are so many health issues that are just ignored in my community because we lack the financial resources. We lack the literacy to ask for them and we lack the uh, compassion to ask for them. So it's a multi-layered issue. So we just chug along. We think if we just continue and fight and hustle and hustle and hustle, things will get better and one day we'll have what we need to get by. But when we play with our bodies like that, it is not what happens and that's what happened to me. Uh, I um, I ended up, uh, my kidneys are failing so I'm on dialysis and I had to leave my job and I don't know, it just felt, um, I feel like I'm getting emotional but it just feels like just when things were finally coming into, into place, things are falling apart. But I don't want to make the show about I feel like I'm being off. I'm sorry. The show's about you, CJ. I know. Um, the show's about you. And so, um, and so every time I, I, you know, I'll bug you about the show or something, and you'll be like, I can't talk right now. I'm in treatment. And what, what you're referring to what? Dialysis. Dialysis. They, uh, it's like they put you up to a machine and cleans your blood for you. And you're, you're there how often? Uh, three times a week. How many hours? Five hours. Okay. And so do you need a kidney transplant? Is that the... And what do you? And I know there's some barriers to that as well. Yeah, I have to. I have to. I have a bunch of markers I have to hit, and, and just this is my first year too, so it's just been a hard year. It's a very draining process. It's very tiring, and my muscles are they're just getting weak. I don't know. It's just weird. It's a weird place to be in your thirties. <laughs> but uh, I believe. I also personally believe, and it was just reaffirmed that I've had such a great impact on the lives around me. And that, you know, God, it can't have been for nothing. Like, all this stuff, everything I learned, everything I know, everything I've been through, it it can't have been for nothing. I have so much more to do just to be defeated by this. So where is it that you look for inspiration and for energy and for hope and faith? God, of course, number one, first and foremost, no matter what, I believe in a higher power. I have a connection to a God that has has ordained that I'm here for a reason. He sacrificed his son for me to be here, so I'm going to make sure that that counts for something. Um, Beyonce <laughs> moves me. And my friends, like people, like I've learned that 
like life is about people. Like the impact that I've had on people's lives. When they look at me and say, "Bro, you changed. You made me better," and they make they turn around and make me better. That that reciprocal growth. Like even when I'm gone, I know they'll remember me and my nephew nephew remember me. And you know, oh man, it's just. Those are the things that are going to be the most important at the end of the day. I just want to change lives and be changed by those lives. <sighs> Breathe. So let's look past this. Let's see. You, you hit your markers. You get your kidney. What's what's next for CJ? Because I, I, I will tell you, having known you now for, I don't know, maybe it's 10 years or more. We've run into <laughs> here once in a while. I know personally, at least how I can see it, you have a lot more to give, a lot more lives to change. I and do. so I'm trying to think how that happens. But Hopefully, in, I'll get to focus on the creation of my new organization. Let's talk about that. When, I know I'm, I'm helping you out a little bit with that. What is <laughs> what, Let's talk about the name of that organization. Uh, it's called Fresh Fly and Smart. Mm-hmm. And it's a community organization which is going to be built in uh, the place where the community meets. We're looking to get into some local barbershops and create uh, conversations about reading and education and building up some of the youth that come in there. Our organization is looking to build community with the shops and to offer free haircuts to kids in our programs. Uh, We'll host community events, get food trucks out, do all kinds of things. Whatever the community needs, we want to meet the community where they are and and bring in what they need. So you uh, you need books on vegan cooking? We got it. You need a vegan cooking class? We'll do that. You want to have a barbecue? Let's do it. You want to learn how to ride a bike? You want a bike. How can we put these things and tools in your hands? How can we educate you on the things that that matter? The things that you want to learn about? Because the only thing that's missing is that. I remember my little cousin Marlon, he, uh, he wanted to know about animals when he was younger and he, he, he had trouble reading. I just, just always bring him animal books all the time. The only thing that's missing for most kids is just somebody to invest in them. You talked about a paper I wrote. I want to talk about another paper I wrote that was about um, investment in kids. And the only the the number one marker in student achievement is investment from social groups, social capital, not just from from their friends, but from people who give them a kudos in real life. Like that's why student athletes tend to thrive. Student artists, students that sing, they thrive because they're getting social capital and investment from other outside groups. So the reason I found a Fresh Fly Smart because I want to take my interest and get people that I know to invest in all the kids. Uh, just because you're reading, just because you exist, we want to invest in you. We want to see what do you like to do. Kudos for that. Let's get you that. Do you want to read? Let's do that. However we can build you up, let's do that because I want to be the person that I needed coming up when I was in those group homes. I'm never going to... I decided long ago when I, you told me that thought that I said that they wouldn't defeat me, that's when I decided I was always going to grow up and be a good person. No matter what happens in the world, the ugliness, the Trumpisms, all these other different things that exist, they won't break my soul. I have to quote Beyonce on that. Hmm. You have to be the change you want to see. I got that from Mahatma Gandhi. Be the change you want to see in the world. And I took that to heart. And ever since, I've been going out and doing my thing, trying, going out. And one other thing I will say about uh, even the NAACP, 
like I learned that my voice matters in the national conversation too I thought when I got to the national conversation I would be dwarfed by all these people from California and New York and Virginia and all these places that really are big on the political landscape and it turns out like I was in their leading conversations and being vivacious and being a leader in the leaders like it's just such a affirm I'm one of those people that needs to be affirmed a lot. I'm not ashamed of it. A lot of people be ashamed, like, why do you need somebody to affirm this about you? Affirm that. I need it. It makes me feel good. I don't like to feel like, and I guess maybe because I've been gaslit a lot as a kid to think that my feelings weren't valid. As an adult, I need affirmation. Uh, (laughs) This is more that self-analysis. But, yeah, I'm not ashamed to say I need the affirmation. And and leadership, I got a lot of affirmation, and I'm, I'm grateful for all of it. This journey has been amazing. And even as I faced the biggest challenge yet, um, my health, um, even, you know, whatever's going on at, at home even right now, like lots of challenges, but I'm going to face them head on with optimism and, and, and the spirit that has gotten me through everything else. I overcame so much. What's one more mountain? <laughs> so let's talk about this organization a little more. The name of it is, say, say the name again. Fresh, Fly, and Smart. And and I know starting in the spring, hopefully, that you're going to put on some events at local Absolutely. barbershops. Absolutely. We're looking to, to get some stuff really going. My partner, her name is Jaqueta Gray. Oh, she's going to be so mad. <laughs> Let me do that one more time. My partner, her name is Jaqueta Gray. <laughs> Sure. And she is amazing. She focuses on college uh, readiness and uh, college counseling. And I focus on uh, literacy and other aspects of the program. And we are going to be offering a lot of services pretty soon. I just got to get over this health hurdle so we, we can focus on it. CJ, I really appreciate you being here. And to the extent you need affirmation, I'm telling you, you're a wonderful person and you're an inspiration to me. And I have to imagine inspiration to all the people that you've touched throughout your life to this date, but even more important now going forward. And so I look forward to hearing more about the organization and maybe we could cover one of the events coming up next year. Absolutely. We'd love to have it. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. One, two, three, four. Ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen. David D. Hard Knock Radio hanging out with you this afternoon. On today's show, we want to talk about trauma and resilience, and especially trauma as it pertains to young people, kids. Um, We have a guest who specializes in this area. He's well known around the country. His name is Bruce D. Perry. He's a senior fellow at the Child Trauma Academy, which is a nonprofit organization based in Houston. You can reach them at uh, childtrauma.org. He's also a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University School of Medicine in Chicago. Uh, We could go on and on, um, but he is the author of several books. Uh, One is called The Boy Who Who Was Raised as a Dog. The other one is called Born for Love. And the one that we want to talk about is What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, 
resilience and healing and his co-author none other than oprah winfrey so welcome to the show and how are you doing thank you very much uh i am i'm all right i'm all right all things considered you're in two hot spots you know where we want to talk about trauma and how it relates to young people you're yeah. in chicago which is frequently held up as you know this is a place where bad things happen because of the violence that is um often shown i don't know if it's the most violent place but it's definitely in terms of political arenas it's the discussion that everybody getting a lot of attention gets a lot of attention um but then also your organization is based down in texas and when we um reached out to get you on the show the tragedies that happened in ovaldi had not occurred and here we are in the midst of people um getting funerals and the whole nine um as our audience here knows, you know, I have, um, you know, my mother-in-law and my sister's-in-law teach in Texas, and they're oh, not far gosh. from that area. You know, they're about half hour, maybe an hour away, depending on which city. Mm-hmm. Um, so that hits close to home in the sense that you're around, you know, that sort of energy of teachers and you see the pictures and they and they all teach, you know, kids yeah. in that grade, you know, third, yeah. fourth. My wife yeah. is a kindergarten teacher. And when I see the pictures of the kids in her class, it's hard to distinguish those kids, those black and brown kids, in this case, mostly brown kids in Ovaldi from the ones I see in the picture. And then, of course, yeah. I have my own elementary age kids as well. Um, I bring that up to say the events as they unfolded and what we're learning is traumatic for me. You know, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, it, it's hurtful. There's no it's doubt painful. about it. It's very, you know, I, when you asked me how I was doing, mm-hmm. if I would have told you the truth, I, right. I would have said, I, I'm burned out. I'm, I'm wow. exhausted. Cause we our our team has been working both with the Ukrainian refugee situation oh, wow. and with all of the other things that we do across this country. But then uh, more recently with Uvalde, you know, the community there, we I've, I've spoken with several of the parents, which is just a heartbreaking experience. And even yeah. just watching the news, I think for most people is overwhelming. You know, I, I know that I've seen multiple people that I know in my sphere of influence who will start talking about it and then just say, I can't talk about it anymore. We got to, you know, I can't watch the news anymore. I I don't want to think about it anymore. I've had four or five people tell me that they wake up in the middle of the night think with, with, you know, thinking about it. And, and like you said, the common denominator is it's people who have children or grandchildren or family members that teach and, just it's this can be very overwhelming and traumatizing, even if you're not there. No, it is. And that's on top of Buffalo. Yeah. Which is so, you uh, know, and so for somebody, you know, so, you know, for me, I see grandparents and grandmas in that. And that was heartbreaking enough. Um, And I bring all this up. I don't want to center it on me, but just to give people a context, um, if I'm feeling this as somebody who is, I'm not in Uvalde, I'm not in Buffalo, and I know, you know, the information that is coming is heart-wrenching, 
I can only imagine the people who actually experienced it. And this is where you and your work come in. And and to a large degree, this is what your book is focused on, at least giving us an idea to understand this. Um, So one, let me just ask the basic question since we started talking about these, these tragedies. Maybe you can paint a picture and walk us through what somebody who was in third or fourth grade, who was in that classroom, who woke up today and like more than half their class is being buried. They're gone. That must be crazy. And then, you know, we focus on that, but then you also in Chicago. So that's a thing that is highlighted every day. You know, one day you have friends there, the next day you don't. I, I don't, you know. It becomes, you know, one of the things that, over the years that we've seen and tried to study a little bit is the ways in which our mind allows us to sort of adapt to the incomprehensible. Right. And there's a tech, there's a defense mechanism, sort of an adaptation that we all can use and we all do use it at different times. And it's called, we refer to it as dissociation. And that kind of is this, this disconnection from the emotional intensity of the moment. And it allows you to almost be in parallel with your pain. You, you observe it uh, and, and you can do that for a while, but part of the problem is that that always breaks through. You know, you just, right. it, you can't stay there forever. And, and if you do stay there forever, then you start to have other kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. where I think everybody's listening knows what it's like to be in a conversation with somebody when you feel like they're really present, like right. they're really listening. It's a, it has a whole different quality than somebody who's just sort of showing yeah. up. Right. And so if you're a kid in class or if you're a kid who's dissociated because you're coping with the images of what happened to you last week, you're not going to be able to to be present to benefit from that kind of real true moment that people have and you're not and you're not going to be able to be present to fully learn the cognitive concept that's being taught in class and so pretty soon you start to socially disengage and you start to academically fall behind and it's you know believe it or not it was originally referred to as zombieism We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about. 
something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale, And if I fall down, I'm gonna get back up, it'll be alright.